you got your Bibles, turn with me to John 19 and verses 16 through 30. John 19, 16 through 30. Today, uh, we're going to be talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, at this point in the story, as we come to verse 16, um, and we've covered the last two weeks, Jesus has already been beaten. Uh, the flesh on his back has been laid bare by the Roman whip. A crown of thorns has been pushed down upon his head. <clears throat> he's been mocked. He's been beaten. He's been spit upon. He's weak at this point with loss of blood. But that doesn't compare to the death that awaits him outside the city walls. A death that was considered, uh, even by the Romans, uh, to be a cruel and, and horrible thing. I found this quote by Cicero who was a Roman um, politician and a philosopher. Uh, he actually lived <clears throat> probably about, he died about 50 years before Jesus was born. But he said this, he said, Wretched is the loss of one's good name in the public courts. Wretched, too, a monetary fine exacted from one's property, and wretched is exile. But still, in each calamity, there is retained some trace of liberty. Even if death is set before us, we may die in freedom. But the executioner, the veiling of heads, and the very word cross, let them all be far removed from not only the bodies of Roman citizens, but even from their thoughts, their eyes, and their ears. In fact, crucifixion was considered so horrible and cruel that the Romans would never use it on a Roman citizen, no matter how bad uh, his or her crime as a method of execution, it was designed not only to kill the victim, but also to humiliate them and, and degrade them. Therefore, it was a death that the Romans reserved for foreign slaves and criminals, those considered by them to be the lowest of the low. In fact, we have very little archaeological evidence of crucifixion. We do have some, which you'll see here uh, in a little bit. But we don't have very much at all of, of have been able to find victims of crucifixion. And the reason is that the victims were hardly ever buried. Um, they were considered so low by the Romans that they were literally taken off the cross after their death and their bodies were thrown on trash heaps for dogs and, and vultures to eat. It was very rare for a crucifixion victim uh, to, be, uh, to be buried. Now, on that basis, it might be thought that the Christian church would want to hush up the fact that its founder, Jesus Christ, was crucified. I mean, it's not exactly something to be proud of. But in actuality, the, the exact opposite is, is the case. In fact, Jesus regarded his death by crucifixion as the moment of exaltation when his divine glory would be most revealed. Listen to these scriptures, John eight twenty eight. <clears throat> Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak as the Father taught me. John twelve, thirty two to thirty three. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. In John seventeen, he's praying to the Father. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me uh, to do. Now the apostles themselves, they knew 
that the idea of a crucified Savior would be an issue for people to overcome, something that would be offensive to people. In 1 Corinthians 1.23, Paul says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. In Galatians 5.11, Paul said, If I were no longer preaching salvation through the cross of Christ, no one would be uh, offended. But despite that, despite that the message of the cross wasn't something that people wanted to hear, the apostles still placed the crucifixion of Jesus Christ at the very heart of their preaching. In 1 Corinthians 2.2, Paul says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. In verse 5 of, of that same chapter, he said, So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You see, Paul and the other apostles <clears throat> renounced rhetoric, and they preached a crucified Christ in a crucified style. And the reason why the apostles made Jesus' death, and in fact his scandalous death, so central to their message is that they believed that he did not die on that cross for his own sins as a failed Messiah. He died for us. He died for our sins to become, to become our Savior. Romans 5.8, Paul says, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Corinthians 15.3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. 1 John 2.2, He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, not only ours, but the sins of all the world. The cross of Jesus wasn't something the disciples were ever ashamed about. Uh, In fact, they saw it as the greatest revelation of the glory of God because it is in that, the death on the cross, that we see that the Father loves us so much that He would have His only Son to suffer and die. And it's there we see the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us, bearing our sins and His body on the tree. You see, Cicero urged his fellow Roman citizens to avert their thoughts, their eyes and the ears from the cross, but not us, not not Christians. That which was most shameful to Cicero and the Romans becomes our proudest boast. Paul says in Galatians 6.14, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now as we turn to John's account of the crucifixion, One of the first things that jumps out at me is how much detail he leaves out. For example, there's nothing in there of Christ's conversation with the repentant thief. There's nothing about the spear that stuck into his side. There's nothing about the veil of the temple being torn or the darkness being over the land. There's there's many details that John could have included, but he doesn't. And I have to ask why not. And And we've said it before, and it bears repeating once again, that John has a very specific purpose when it comes to his gospel. In John 20, 31, he says this, But these are written, these things are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His his name. John's purpose is to present... Christ as God, to present Christ in His 
majesty, his beauty, his glory. So John chooses and selects certain things around the cross that lend themselves to, uh, to this purpose. Now the four things that we're going to see today that John does is he's going to show us specific fulfillments of prophecy. Uh, he's going to point out the inscription that, that Pilate put on the cross. He's going to point out uh, Jesus' selfless love. And then finally, he's going to point out the supernatural knowledge and control that Jesus shows on the, on the cross. But it's also interesting to note what John doesn't do. Uh, another thing that we'll notice about John's account is he doesn't dwell on the emotional aspects of the crucifixion. He doesn't paint us a vivid picture of the agony uh, that Jesus went through. He doesn't dwell on the drama and try to stir our emotions. Let's look, John 19, verses 16 through 18. It says this, So he delivered him, talking about Pilate, delivered Jesus over to them to be crucified. And so they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. In John's account, that's the crucifixion. That's, that's all he says. He doesn't dramatize it. He doesn't portray the dripping blood and, and go into all the dramatics. But again, that's, that's not his purpose. His purpose is to show the deity of Christ. So the first thing he does, for example, is he talks about the inscription. Let's read that in verses 19 through 22. It says, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. And it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and also in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Don't write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said he's the King of the Jews. But Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Someone asked last week if Pilate really believed that Jesus was king of the Jews, and, I'm, and I don't think he did at all. Um, I don't think he believed he was the son of God. He didn't believe he was the king of the Jews. No, Pilate is just getting back at the Jews for forcing his hand on this issue. He, he's using this sign to mock their Jews, to mock the Jews. After all, if their king is this broken man that's hanging on a cross and bleeding, what does that say about them as a, as a people? And so Pilate wants everyone to see it, so he has it written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the, of the Jews. Now you may ask, well, how in the world does that glorify Jesus, this sign that's written in jest? But isn't it interesting that what a man writes in mockery and cynicism turns out to be the truth displayed for everyone to see. And, and here is a principle that we see over and over again in the Bible, that what, what men mean for evil, God means for good. Here in this instance, God takes the wrath of men and uses it to praise His Son. Pilate, witlessly and unknowingly, announces to the world for all time the absolute truth, this is the King of the Jews. Now, another way that John wants to show the majesty and the glory and the deity of Christ is through showing how Christ in his death specifically fulfills Old Testament prophecy. First of all, Jesus had to be led. 
According to historians, the victim of a crucifixion was often so panicky and so terrified they had to be dragged or carried to their execution. In addition, the scourging they oft, that often preceded the execution made them so weak they couldn't walk on their own. But that wasn't true with Jesus. He did walk on his own, carrying his cross. He was led to his own execution. There was no panic. There was no struggle. And you may say, well, what's significant about that? Well, it had to happen that way in order to fulfill Scripture. Isaiah 53.7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The crucifixion had to happen outside the city. John tells us, So they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross. Jesus had to be crucified outside the city, which he was, in order to fulfill Scripture. In Leviticus 16.27, it says, And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. Here again, John is not specifically quoting Old Testament Scripture but he is making sure to recount these things that he knows are important to show who Christ really is. Now later, the writer of Hebrews will make this very specific in Hebrews 13, 11 through 32, uh, I'm sorry, 11 through 12, says for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Jesus also had to suffer a certain way. Um, there are many times we, we hear the question, why did Jesus have to die that way? Couldn't he have been, had been beheaded? Couldn't he have been stoned? Could he have been hanged? And the answer to all those is no. Um, because of prophecy, it was prophesied that he had to die a certain way, and, and he had to die through crucifixion. Now, there were many ways to crucify someone, and the time that victims took to die would depend on how they were crucified. Those accused of robbery uh, were often tied to the cross, and because they could better support their weight with their arms and their legs, they might survive for several days. Uh, one of the most severe methods of crucifixion put the arm straight above the victim which would make it almost impossible to breathe. Those victims crucified that way would only last probably 10 to 30 minutes before they, uh, before they died. But someone like Jesus, nailed to the cross with their arms stretched out on either side, could expect to live up to 24 hours. Now, the way this was done is that 7-inch nails would be driven through the wrists so that the bones could support the body's weight. When it was done this way, the nail would sever the median nerve, which would not only cause immense pain, but would have paralyzed the victim's hands. The feet were nailed to the upright part of the cross, so the knees were bent at around a 45-degree angle. So the victim had to continually push themselves up using their legs in order to breathe. That's why executioners would often break the legs of the victims, which would speed their death because they could no longer push themselves up or use their thigh muscles for support. There's a picture 
that you can find out on the internet. Um, there was an archaeology dig, I, I believe, back in the 80s, and uh, they actually uncovered the tomb of a, of a young Jewish man, I think he was about 19 or 20 years old, who had been crucified, and this particular young man was buried. And they actually found he had, uh, the, the nails still in his feet. And the interesting thing was that instead of um, being driven through the top of his feet, it was actually his the feet were placed on either side of the beam, and then the nails were driven in laterally through the heels. Um, so it, you could just see it was an extremely painful uh, thing to happen. Now, once the legs gave out, which would eventually happen, you, you're just, you couldn't, the, the victim couldn't hold their weight up anymore with their legs. Once that happens, the weight would be transferred to the arms, which would immediately, uh, eventually cause the shoulders to disengage from the sockets and the elbows and the wrist would follow a, a few minutes later. And the victim at that point would have no choice but to bear all his weight on his chest and he would immediately have trouble breathing because the weight would cause the rib cage to lift up and, and force him into an almost perpetual state of inhalation. Suffocation would usually follow, but death could also occur in other ways. Jeremy Ward, who's a physiologist with King's College in London, says this, the resultant lack of oxygen in the blood would cause damage to tissues and blood vessels allowing fluid to diffuse out of the blood into tissues, including the lungs and the sac uh, around the heart. And so you could die from suffocation, you could die from, from heart failure and other things as well. So here's Jesus who is uh, crucified in this way, and he's hanging there. His joints are out of socket. He's racked with thirst. He's tormented by gnats and flies. Uh, there's unbearable pain from torn tendons, agony from the horrible weight of his body hanging by those wounds, suffocating by the rearrangement of his internal organs, a, a throbbing headache beyond belief. It, it's an ugly picture, but you see it's a picture that was accurately prophesied hundreds of years before. Psalms 22, 14-17 says this, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's, it's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones and they stare and gloat over me. Now another thing that Jesus had to do is he had to die with criminals. And so John again points out, he says, There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Again, this was prophesied by Isaiah in 53.9. It says, They made his grave with the wicked. And in 53.12, he was numbered with the transgressors. Now let me point out, uh, Paul's right here, and point out one more time if I can, the principle that we mentioned earlier. Um, if we go back to verse 16, it says, So he, talking about Pilate, delivered him over to them to be crucified. Now, here we've got this, this panicky, beaten Pilate who, who's 
unable to control the crowd. He's he sees that he's got a riot on his hands, and um, so he washes his hands of the whole mess and delivers or hands Jesus over to be crucified. Yet later, Paul will say in Romans eight thirty two that he talking about God the Father who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? So here's the question that gets raised. Who delivered Jesus to be crucified? Was it Pilate or was it God the Father? Now what we see in this principle that we talk about is that they're both true. Yes, Pilate delivered him to be killed, and, and he's responsible for that. But in doing so, he was unknowingly executing the plan of God the Father. Though men meant it for evil, God means it for good. And I've said this to you many times before, and and, and don't ever forget it. God's plans are always on schedule. It doesn't matter. He'll he'll make his plans work through sinful men and holy men. Um, He is the author of history. And we have to understand that these things go together that God will use the hateful and sinful things of men to accomplish His purpose. And so we should keep this principle in mind and and learn it well, that that God works His purposes through holy men and sinful men, and no sinful man will for one split second ever violate the plan of God. So what men see as mockery by crucifying Jesus with common criminals, it turns out to be the design of God as a glorious fulfillment of a detailed prophecy. We don't see a humiliated Christ dying with criminals. We see an exalted Christ fulfilling prophecy. And how fitting that one of those thieves that Pilate stuck up there ended up being the first trophy of the grace of Christ won at the cross. Finally, John wants us to understand that they had to gamble for his clothes. Here John points out a very specific prophecy that's being um, fulfilled. Look at verses 23 through 24. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, and also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let's don't tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. And this was to fulfill scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now the scripture John is referring to is found in Psalms 22.18, where it says, just as plain as day, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now in order to fulfill this scripture, the soldiers had to do two things. First, they had to divide his garments among them. Now there are four soldiers, and they each take one thing. Uh, This would probably have been the shoes, the belt, the headdress, and the outer cloak. But once this was done, in order to fulfill Scripture, they still had to gamble for for some other piece of clothing. And they did that by casting lots for his inner tunic. Now, as I read that, I couldn't help but think that here's this group of men, four of them, in fact, who are sitting beneath the Son of God, sitting beneath the uh, the greatest momentous the the this most momentous act in history and all they can think about is gambling uh, for some clothes i mean it's just indifference to jesus christ this morning as i was driving to church and i 
would see people pulling their boats to go fishing, or I see people walking in the park, and, and, and it's the same thing we see today. It's just an indifference to Jesus Christ. Now, the third thing that John wants us to see is his selfless love. Look at verses 24 to 27. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So we see three or four brave women standing at the foot of the cross, one of which is Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now some 30 years earlier, Mary and Joseph had taken Jesus to the temple where they met a man named Simeon. In Luke 2, 34-35, it recounts that meeting this way. Then Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, the baby's mother, This child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall, but he will be a joy to many others. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And then Simeon said this to Mary, And a sword will pierce your very soul. This is that day. As Mary stands at the foot of the cross, this is her little boy that is dying. This is her son, her beloved son. So we can only imagine what she's going through, that she knows she can't do anything. But then Jesus does something. In the midst of his suffering and his pain, in the midst of bearing the sin of the world, he remembers his mother. Verses 26 through 27. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, which is John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Even though he was in such pain, even though he's, he's, he's busy taking on the sin of the world, he remembered his mother and he gave her a new son. He knew that from the moment of his death, he would cease to be the earthly son of Mary. So he replaced himself in Mary's life with John. I mean, when you think about it, it's almost incomprehensible that Jesus occupied with the most stupendous task in the history of the universe, the salvation of mankind, and doing it under the most painful and dire circumstances. In the middle of all this, he thinks not one thought of himself, but cares for his mother and for his beloved disciple. That is such an insight into the caring love of Jesus Christ. Listen, when you and I have a problem, we shouldn't ever think that Jesus is too busy running the universe and spinning the planets and doing the things he has to do to care about us. Don't ever believe that for a moment. When he's even the busiest, doing the most, he's the most sensitized to the the care that we need at every moment. Now, there is one question that gets asked. Why would he assign the responsibility of taking care of his mother to John? Why not his own brothers or, or you know, Mary's other sons? The, the best explanation we have for that is that Jesus couldn't turn uh, or wouldn't turn Mary over to his own brothers because they didn't believe in him. Now, now, later, after he rises from the dead, his brothers will come to believe. We'll see both Mary and his brothers uh, in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. But at this point, he knows Mary needs a believing son. And so instead of committing her to his brothers, um, he commits her to the tender loving care of of John, um, who who is obviously a, a strong believer. Now finally, John wants us to see 
the supernatural control and knowledge of Jesus. The final verses, and look at verses 28 through 29. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, In order to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Jesus, in his omniscience, knows that there is one more prophecy that needs to be fulfilled. Psalm 69, 21 says, They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Now, at this point, it's over. Verse 30 says, When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. The work of redemption was done. All the things that had been done, which the law of God required, all things fulfilled, which prophecy predicted, all things accomplished, which the Father had given him to do, all things performed that were necessary to change for salvation. Sin's wages were, were paid. Divine justice was satisfied. It's over. And he just dies. He, he doesn't die from suffocation. He doesn't die from a heart attack. None of those things kill him. He controls his own death. He gives up his spirit. Now, there are many people who think that you receive Jesus Christ and then you add works to that for salvation or you add good deeds to say saved. But when Jesus said it's finished, he meant exactly what he said. The beginning and the end of salvation was finished by the act of Jesus Christ and you and I can add absolutely nothing to that. He finished it on the cross. All you and I have to do is have faith in his finished work. Let's pray.